Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. The book of John, the Gospel, unfolds with the words, the three words, as the scriptures unfolded in the beginning. And it draws in John the gospel to a conclusion that the one who declares himself the beginning is also the one who declares himself the ending. John would be the one who describes him as the beginning, the first three words in John 1. He ends in Revelation 22, says he is the alpha and the omega. Omega means the end, the last of the alphabet. He's the first letter, A, and he's the Z or Z if you're American. He is the end. Of the alpha. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's the first, he's the last. He's the alpha, he's the omega. John starts off, he's the beginning. He will close, he doesn't use the words of the close, but he draws the life to the end of the revelation that he is also the ending. He is the beginning and he is the end. In other words, life on this planet had a precise executed beginning. It was not a blob, it was not an explosion. There was a beginning when God spoke the word and the world came into being. He spoke it, and it happened. The beginning, in the beginning, there was a definite, precise moment. It started. And as sure as that is, it has a definitive end in the world we know it as. He who planned them both to perfection didn't leave anything to be coincidental in the middle between the beginning and the end. He is the beginning, he is the end, and everything in between is by precision. He set it in place. I want to begin with some silent years. In John chapter 1, it starts off in the beginning. It's believed that it was about 28 AD when he wrote this. Take or give a few years. It's hard to know exactly. It's about 28 AD. Prior to John writing in the first chapter, there were what, what scholars call the silent years. They were a long time. Anybody, somebody here tell me the last book of the Old Testament. What's the name of it? Malachi. The prophet Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament. At the point where Malachi prophesied in Malachi, over 400 years passed before we get to John 1. Over 400 years passed. There is nothing recorded in Scripture during that time. We call that the silent years. Is God not speaking? God is speaking. But in that period of time, in the time of Israel, the time of the chosen people, in that period of time, they had not heard, they hadn't heard a word in over four centuries. Life continued, though. For them, it continued on. They covered over their insecurities of not hearing from God with blankets of sameness. Isn't it true today? When we stop hearing from God, we just go back and get into a simple routine. And we start living life on the routine. And what happens in the routine, we start to build laws upon laws upon laws, and we layer up our laws of religion. When the voice of God ceases to speak to the hearts of people, we will rely on the last things we heard, and now we build on it our own religions. That's exactly what happened. 
By the time John happens, Jesus is born. All that begins to take place. There is religion upon religion upon religion. Who was Jesus' greatest, I'm going to call them enemies, but those who resisted the gospel the most were the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were people who could tell you all the things that had happened in the last 400 years when, this, when God wasn't speaking to his people. They had made laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. And so when the answer to the prophet's inquiry came, Jesus, the Messiah, stood right before them. They couldn't see him. All they could see was laws. They were looking for a Messiah that was not the Messiah the prophets had prophesied. Had they been able to dissect the prophecies of the prophets, Jesus fulfilled them all. But they had built an empire on something else. I call it the empire of saneness. They, they had built on the same things over and over again. And no longer the vitality and freshness and life of Christ was there. It had ceased for over 100 years. The Hebrew people had climbed to a summit of legalism in the silent years between Malachi and Matthew. And that's what religious people tend to do. That's why I don't... I understand when we, we are a religion... But we're so much more. Serving Christ is religious. So much more. Because religion is simply heaping upon the things we've heard and laws that we abide by or attempt to abide by or impose upon others. Beloved, I believe we have no idea how busy God's hands and even his mouth had been during those 400 years where God is concerned, silence never equals slumber. God was not slumbering. For those of us looking for an overall grasp of what the God of the universe is doing with planet Earth, I don't think there's a better way to understand it than to study some of the titles of Jesus, the descriptions of Christ himself. These are significant, issued from even his own mouth in Revelation 22, verse 13. He describes himself, and in describing himself, he gives us a glimpse of what all of the purpose of earth and the universe is about. Revelation 22 says he is the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we see in the silent year, God was still speaking. I want to move on to the second part as I begin to pursue John's passion. We see him called. By Jesus. Matthew 4 21, Matthew describes it, says, Going on from there, Jesus saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, James and John. Now, typically they put the older name first, and so James is older again, John was the youngest, James and John. Two brothers, James and John. The boys grew up not far from the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they were fishermen. Zebedee was a fisherman, and so frequently you passed the business, and it was a good business. Nothing shabby about being a fisherman. You had investments in place. You were a salesman. You had to sell your fish, and, uh, and you had to work for a living. It was all year round. I mean, the Sea of Galilee never froze over, so you spent your life fishing, and you had property. You had boats, you had them built, you had them maintained, you had a crew that you worked with. It wasn't a bad life. People had to eat, 
One of their favorite foods was fish. As long as there's fish in the sea, you had work. The boys had some close friends. Another set of brothers. Their names were Peter and Andrew. You heard their name? Peter and Andrew were close friends of James and John. They were likewise fishermen. They would have fished in the same. They were not competitors as much as workers together in the fishing industry. Lots of fish out there. You work together where the fish would school and pool together. You would let the other boats know they would come and they would catch fish. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Since the families used the Hebrew language, John's name was actually Johanan. His name was Johanan. And as eloquent as that sounds, that was his common name as was Mary or Miriam of the day. Johanan. Uh, those who watched John grow up would have, like everyone else, assumed he would take over dad's business of fishing. I, I'm picturing it that there may be a sign out in front of their boats, maybe by the stands where they sold the fish, the market, Zeb and Sons. I think that's what I would have called it. I don't know. Zeb and Sons. Zebedee, Zeb and Sons. And uh, again, they worked with dad. It was a fruitful business. Now, Growing up on the shore of Jesus' favorite sea, John had no idea at this point just how gracious God had been in his life to bring him to this point. But he would get a glimpse. Without delay, Jesus, right at the early part of the gospel, calls John. He calls him to leave the boats and to follow him. We read of it in Mark 1.20. Follow me, John was called. And so they left Zebedee, the boat, the hired men, and followed Jesus. I'm sure that when Zeb was reaping a harvest of parental rewards, I mean, you work on raising your kids to be outstanding sons or daughters, that they would take over and be more successful than you. All of us who have children want them more successful than us. That just at the pinnacle of that moment, this young man is called out. Both sons called out from underneath dad's slimy fishing net to go to something else. Zeb and son signs out front. He's going to have to change the name to just Zeb. Zeb. I wonder how he felt. We have no idea. I believe he probably at first really struggled with it, but would later understand this was the best thing that ever happened. I can relate in some ways because in my own story, I relate to this part because I grew up on a dairy farm, Jersey dairy farm, and on the dairy farm, it had been 100 years old, and just before the 100th anniversary of the farm, so it was done by my great-grandfather, he had cleared the land. And it was a successful farm, uh, no debt outstanding, and, and I was the only one to take over. It would, my dad, his name was Arnold. And so he had a sign at the road, and it was called, his nickname, his friends called him Arnie. Arnie, Arnie. And so the sign said, Arnley Acres and Son. Arnley Acres and Son. I used to be proud of that sign until the day I told Dad I'm going into ministry. I feel a little bit with this. Although that was an unusual thing, and like where does the farm go? And the farm has since been sold out of the name to Mennonites. But at that point in time, it was a harsh reality of the call of God. My dad would later tell me that it was the best decision I ever made. Not that he didn't want me to take over, but he knew I was answering 
a higher call. And I had to obey it. I believe that was true with Zeb and sons. So you had to wipe out the name and sons and just back to Zeb and his hirelings. Once we let Jesus Christ really get into our hearts, there's something about going back to the old things that are just not the same. It's not that we are called into full-time ministry, but I believe we are all called. We're all called to ministry. We're all called to reach people for Christ. Come follow me, Jesus would say, and I will make you fishers of men. That call is for everyone. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. If you look at that again, you see, come follow me and I will make you. I mean, think about it. Decades later, I'm thinking John in his 80s, maybe his 90s, when he would think back in the face of all the religious things he had faced over the decades and all the things he could boast about when he saw the, revol- the, the revolution of, of, the, of the nation, when he saw what the gospel did and people coming to Christ. I mean, John outlived them all. And when he saw all that take place and he looks back upon all the stories and success and the hundreds of thousands, millions coming to Christ, following him, life transformation, changing entire continents. When he began to look back on that, he never forgot the phrase when Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You didn't do it on your own. John, it wasn't about you. It was about Christ in you. I will give you everything you need to be fishers of men. I am the one behind this. The key part of this is I will make you. Christ made them the ones that changed the world. Do you see that in your life? How Christ has made you something different than what was. And when Christ takes supremacy in your heart and your life, Watch what happens in transformation in the lives of others. The last one I want to share this morning is we see in the early part of John a miracle. John chapter 2 verse 1 says that on the third day a wedding took place, Cana of Galilee. Now, we're not entirely sure, and I looked at some of the things that scholars were writing, and, and they were a little mixed on this one. Most of them assumed, and I'm going to lean this way too, it was on the third day after he had left everything and was following Jesus. On his third day, on John's third day, he was just a young buck following Jesus, one of the early disciples. The whole crowd hadn't been brought together yet. He's one of the early ones. And on the third day, Jesus performs this miracle. It's called the miracle of Cana in Galilee, turning the water into wine. Now, I'm fairly convinced that uh, people don't really understand Jesus unless they walked with him for a while. I get really excited when people first give their lives to Jesus, surrender their hearts to the Lord to follow him. And just that zeal inspires me frequently just to, to watch that, that child like getting up on their feet for the first time and starting to walk. It's thrilling. But it's even more thrilling to know that it's a lifetime of discovery. That years of walking with my Lord has been so richly rewarding to watch him. I've had a few people in my life. When I was a young Christian, I was a chaplain in a nursing home when I was 22, 23, 24 years old. And and I was just with zeal as a chaplain. I would just go there and I would just preach my heart out for those 20, 25 minutes to those seniors 
some of them getting it, some of them not getting it. And, and I had some coming up and tell me, well, you're a young, young man. When you've lived as long as us, you won't be so, you won't think those things anymore. When you've suffered like we've suffered. Well, I want to tell you they're wrong. Because I have not lived as long as they've lived yet. But a few decades have passed under that bridge. And I can testify, he gets sweeter as the days go by. It's not the other way around. I don't disbelieve him more than I did when I was 22. I believe him more than I did when I was 22. Yeah, I was probably naive in some things, said some things that I hadn't yet experienced, but the experience comes. And he has proven himself time and again. And I picture this whole thing here. As John, as he begins the journey, and this is the third day in, he is watching the miracle of Canaan. The disciples were new on the scene. They're getting close to Christ. And I think that Jesus demonstrates to them an opportunity that is very critical in this juncture of John and the other disciples' lives. Soon they would see Jesus perform all manners of miracles, but this was the first. There's something about the first. This was the first one. They, had, they, had, they would later see Jesus raise people from the dead. They would see leprosy fall off. They would see transformation, Jesus making something out of nothing. Over and over, they would see the power of words, demons bowing down. They would watch all this take place, walking on water, silencing storms, all these things. But here in this early point, this third day in, Jesus performs a miracle of turning water to wine. Something that would take their breath away, I'm sure. You see, people are much harder to change than water. And Jesus was about to change people's lives, but let's start with baby steps. We're going to turn water into wine here today. And that was the first miracle, John 2, 1. As they watched the disciples, as they watched this man named Jesus, the carpenter's son, and they fellowshiped with him, they had breakfast with him, lunch with him, supper with him, and everything that he offered in between. When they slept, they got up, they did life together. I wonder what they saw. I think that's about what following Jesus. Following Jesus is not an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Following Jesus is a journey of every day. It's following Jesus. And their following Jesus would be a day-in, day-out experience. They didn't go to the synagogue and learn from Jesus. No, they lived with him. His invitation is not to see him one, hour, one and a half hours a week. Pity to us, if that's what it is. It's meant to be a life lived with him. And so John was experiencing these early days. The third day in, he was observing the life patterns of the Messiah. Oh, what it must be like. We have a number of pictures, snapshots throughout the Gospels and throughout the writers. That's what we're going to be studying and we are studying. I mean, what were they witnessing? Three days in, a weekend, three weeks in to living with Jesus. Here's some of the things they began to witness. They saw consistency. He wasn't moody. He didn't have bad days. He was consistent. They would have seen yet versatility. They would have seen where there were those who were hardened. Scholars of the day who Jesus seemed to be harsh with. And yet when he came to a widow... He was as tender as a puppy. 
They saw versatility in how we dealt with people. They watched this unwavering passion in Jesus. His passion was there morning, night, morning, night. His passion never ceased. They saw him as the lamb, and they saw him as the lion when he overturned tables. He was the center of attention. They saw him being accused. They saw him slipping away when it wasn't his time to be taken captive. They saw him a teacher, and they saw him listening to little children share and tell their stories. They watched all this with Jesus. We know they saw absolute authenticity, but I wonder how they saw it portrayed in everyday life. Some of those things we'll never know this side of eternity. Don't think for a minute that thinking on these things is a waste of time. Because sometimes I think we so raise him up, and he is to be raised up to be worshipped and adored, but he is also the son of God. He's my friend. He's my Lord. He walks with me and talks with me. He fellowships with me. And so to understand him in his humanness, to understand him in his likeness that he's, we are like him, is important. It's not to be missed. And to grab John as John walked those moments, I think it's key to understanding how John viewed himself in light of Christ. The more we grasp the flesh and blood reality of these encounters and try to imagine the intimate details the disciples witnessed in Christ, I think the better. What we're studying isn't religious fiction or simple Christian tradition. Jesus walked into people's lives and changed them. And I don't want anything less, and I don't think you do either. When we read Isaiah 53, verse 2, it said that Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract them to him. In other words, nothing in his appearance. He wasn't the one that you saw him go by and said, oh, I'm going to follow him. Isaiah prophesied said that wasn't the case. People didn't follow him because he just looked like the Messiah. That was not it. Isaiah 53, 2 talks about there was no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his, his appearance that we should desire him. And yet, and yet, there was something about Jesus that caused grown men to walk away from an established career to follow him to death, all the way to death. There's something about him. So what were those things? We're going to take a look at several scriptures that apply to Christ at maybe these early junctures, the early chapters of the gospel writers. I'm going to use the other gospel writers to show you. I want you to notice how when we begin to early look at the early part of Jesus' life, it describes Jesus in a way that attracted people to him. Look at this. Jesus in John or in Luke chapter 2 verse 52. I put this up here for you. Luke 2, it says Luke says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He grew in wisdom and stature. That that there's an attractiveness to that. In Chapter 4, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Mark 1, 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. We can go over and over the early portraits of this Jesus. And John, no less, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, began to watch and observe and live with and feel this man called Jesus. 
Christ was everything that value offered. And Christ still is everything that value offers. People knew he was unique even before they knew he was God. He would have left the heads of people spinning. When he left, they just couldn't get over. Who is he? Who is this guy? He can't be limited to a single personality type. We all have personality type. I think he covered them all. <laughs> Jesus was not one personality type. He was rare. An honest to goodness, whole person. Embodied by the fullness of the Godhead. Colossians 2.9 says, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. Jesus had favor. He had power. He had authority. He had compassion. He was a perfect man. His hands were strong enough to throw tables over and yet tender enough to touch the rotting flesh of a leper and says, I'm willing to make you whole. Those who appreciated his uniqueness were drawn to it and those who were threatened wanted to destroy him. That's Jesus. And as we conclude this introductory on the life of the beloved John, I just want to leave us today as we start to ask this one question. Are you by any chance threatened by Jesus and his desire for you to follow him with complete abandon? And don't answer that quickly. Meditate on this question and see what Holy Spirit surfaces. Here's the question again. Are you by any chance threatened by Jesus and his desire, his desire for you to follow him with complete abandon? Because most are threatened. That's why the road is narrow. Most will examine it and say, I will follow you with calculated distance. They won't say it. But when it comes to full-out commitment, their actions prove it. You get a little bit here, a little bit there, never more than that. What's happening? I will follow you, but not fully. Not with everything. And so the challenge, by any chance threatened by Jesus and his desire for you to follow him with complete abandon, what would that look like? Are you afraid of anything? What would he demand of you? <laughs> he demanded a lot of me when he called. What, would he might, what might he demand of you? What might you have to leave to follow him? Hmm. Are you willing to give up the things that are required to follow him? Many are not. And I take that simply from his scripture. Many will turn away from fully following him. If you're willing, to, though, to cast away your fears, cast away your hindrance, unanswered questions. Oh, I'll follow him if I see someone raised from the dead. I'll follow him if I see this happen. I'll follow him if this happens. And I've come to discover that when he asks us to follow, the first thing out of our mouth needs to be yes before he tells us what it looks like. Because if he tells us what it looked like, and based on what he tells us, we answer him, then we're not truly following him. We're following our desires. We have just mitigated what he has asked of us. 
So when he makes the call, will you follow? John had no idea what it would look like when he dropped the nets and, and walked away towards Jesus for the rest of his life. He had no idea what that meant. But he started with saying yes, and then Jesus unpacked it later. But too many times we want him, tell me exactly what the deal is here, Jesus. And then after we begin to hear stories of other people's lives, we begin the journey, we go, whoa, no, no, uh, uh, but I'll do this. Here's, and we begin to negotiate with Jesus. How many here know it's not a good idea to negotiate with Jesus? Okay, the rest of you, you'll learn it. Not a good idea to negotiate with Jesus. Sometimes you just have to say yes up front. Here am I. Use me. Whatever it looks like. And then as he gives you the task that make no sense, and you see no positive end to it, but you say, but your will be done, not mine, then you will watch the miracle begin to take place in your life. As you, like John, will follow Jesus, follow to the heart of Jesus. I want to go back, Mitzi, if you can take that, show that slide again. There's a slide I put up here. It was a number of years ago I, I, I was talking of this theme to church, and I had, somebody had uh, pulled out this picture, and so I used it as uh, all my slides this picture was a part of all my slides. It was a picture of, you see, a man on a beach, and there's a large footprint. Can you see that? I know we dimmed it to put the letters on, but there's a large footprint there right at the beginning. And I was just a, a couple weeks talking about following John to the heart of Jesus. I was in a staff meeting. It was in the middle of the week. Got a knock on the door of the staff room door, and uh, this elderly man, well, elderly, I mean, he was he, mid-60s, I guess when I hit mid-60s, I'll stop calling it elderly. Um, was knocking at the door, and, and he, uh, he needed to talk to us. And I thought he wanted to talk to me privately. He said, no, 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 I can do it right from here. Uh, he, was, he had just retired from farming. His wife had died just, uh, I forget, I think it was within the, within the last two years his wife had died. They had been married many years. And it ripped the heart out of him. He was an occasional attender to an Anglican church. But he had to tell the story. And he started by asking the question. He says, are you the one who, when you preach, you have a picture of a man on a beach and a large footprint? That's how we started the conversation. I thought, man, I've never started a conversation like that before. And I wasn't sure whether to admit it or to blame somebody else in the room. No, that's the youth pastor, you know. No, I took the blame. Noah, that was me. And he says, I need to tell you what happened. He says, I needed to come and talk to you today. And that day, we led him to the Lord. Right there, standing in the doorway of our staff room, our boardroom. But before we led him to the Lord, he told the story. He said, I had a dream a couple of weeks ago. And it shook me to the core. He says, most dreams come and go. I don't remember them. Most of us can concur to that. He said, but this dream, one part of it stood out. It was on a beach, and there was a large footprint. Huge, huge footprint. And it was going away. And he says, that was in my dream. He said, it really bothered me. I didn't know what it meant. He says, I'm not one to believe in dreams, but it stood out, and it bothered me. He said, he told a friend of her, a lady friend of his, and she had just that week before visited the church. And on my screen, I had the picture. 
And so when he was telling her about this dream that really bothered him, and she knew he was in depression. He was in depression. He was grieving the loss of his wife. He had no purpose in life. He was listless. He had sold his farm. He loved the farm. He sold it. His wife had died. His children were all in different places. And he just felt so lonely, so lost. And he had this dream. And when he told her about the dream, she says, Oh, I know what it means. You need to talk to the pastor at such and such. And so he asked where it was. He got in his car, landed when we were in our staff meeting, came to the door, and he told me the story. And he says, you know what it means. <laughs> I don't know what it means, except that God brought you here. doesn't take rocket science to figure that one out. You don't need to be particularly led of God to know that. He's standing in your doorway, asking as clear as can be, what must I do to be saved? And so we led him to the Lord. He would marry a lady in our church, and they've gone on to share their faith. He has led multiple people to Christ. We just saw him about a month ago, and he is still shining bright for the Lord Jesus. But I was thinking, he answered a call, a call to follow Jesus from a simple picture. A call, he traced it down. That was Jesus pursuing him, but he had to choose would he take it serious or not? His choice, take it serious or not. So as we pursue the heart of following Jesus, my prayer is God, take us deeper. Take us deeper than we've ever been. Take us into the heart of you. I don't simply want to read about what you did. I don't want people to talk about who you are. I want to know you. And be known by you. There's a song. Invite Daniel and the worship team to come back up. They're going to sing and lead us in this song. You know the song. Look at the words. You were the word at the beginning. One with God the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation. Now revealed in you our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing. Everybody say nothing. Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.